Turn with me, please, to the book of Romans, chapter 2. It's good to be back with you. We enjoyed our trip to Ontario. It was quick, but uh, certainly uh, beneficial. We were there for a wedding, our oldest niece. Some of you have met her. Her name is Candace. She's visited here twice and actually was part of our church's uh, team last summer to China, to Asia. So she's known to some of you here. So we were there for her wedding, and it was a great time. It will be known from here on in as the Mad Dash, her wedding. It was held at a conference grounds, a campgrounds. I was actually doing the ceremony, and it was held outside, and it started to rain right after she said, I do. And we made a Mad Dash uh, for the chapel. It made it memorable anyway. Yeah, but it was a wonderful time together, wonderful to see her married to, a, to a, great, a great young man. Have you found Romans chapter 2? I invite you, encourage you to follow along as I read verses 17 through 24. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know His will... And approve what is excellent, because you are instructed from the law. And if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? While you say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Now here's an interesting question. Here's a fascinating question, completely hypothetical. But if the Apostle Paul were alive today, and he were writing this particular section in this particular book, what would he say? How would he word it? Uh, What would it sound like? I am not claiming inspiration here. Let me repeat that. I am not claiming inspiration. But I have used a little sanctified imagination to try to get inside the Apostle Paul's head and reword this section, this text, these verses, uh, as he might have penned them to those living in North America. So here we go. Are you ready? But if you call yourself a born-again Christian, rely on the Bible and affirm that the God of Scripture is the only God, And if you are certain that you have a relationship with this God because you walked down the aisle, signed a commitment card, prayed a prayer, or cried really hard one night a long time ago, and if you have memorized dozens of verses and listened to hundreds of sermons and are able to answer all sorts of difficult questions, and if you are convinced you possess the truth, And therefore, take it upon yourself to instruct your friends and neighbors who are like immature little children in comparison to you. 
Do you teach yourself? Is it possible you have never really understood the truth you claim to possess? Is it possible you overlook your sin while condemning others? Is it possible you abhor blatant idolatry while secretly worshiping the idols of your own heart? Is it possible you condemn the homosexual? while permitting all sorts of unclean thoughts to run through your mind like an open sewer? Is it possible you condemn the liberal while harboring deeply entrenched feelings of envy, anger, bitterness, resentment? Is it possible you base your relationship with God on who you think you are? For example, do you equate Christianity with being American? Is it possible you base your relationship with God on what you think you know? For example, do you rely on your theological correctness? Do you rely on your church's doctrines and traditions? Is it possible you base your relationship with God on what you think you do? For example, do you rely on your personal code of conduct? Do you rely on your powerful, personal, emotional experiences? Do you rely on your convictions concerning how the family unit should function? Do you rely on your convictions concerning abortion and a host of other social issues? Do you equate any of these things in themselves with what it means to be right in the eyes of God? Are you overly critical? Do people feel uncomfortable around you because they never know what's going to come out of your mouth? Are you overly sensitive? Do you become defensive when people dare to mention your shortcomings? Are you harsh because you must constantly find people who are not as good, not as smart, not as orthodox, or not as godly as you? Are you smug because you think you're pretty good? Are you anxious because you're never sure you've done quite enough? If so... Oh, you who boast in God and the Bible, you are terribly deceived. And you are the biggest impediment to the gospel. Do you not realize that unbelievers blaspheme God's name on account of your blatant hypocrisy? I think that's what Paul would say today. I'm 99% confident that is how he would have worded this section. And so this is our business. We want to hear God's message through God's word, by God's spirit. We want to wrestle with this text. And here's how we're going to do it. We're going to ask three questions. And by answering these three questions, we'll get the sense of the text. And then we're going to apply it, driving home, gently yet forcefully, Four points of application. So you got that. Three questions, four points of application. It's there in the sermon notes. You can follow along. But before we get to any of it, we need to pause, take a moment, and set these verses in their context. First slide, please. Melissa. Told her I was going to use her name. She said, don't use my name. There's her name. First slide. There you have it. Let me stand over here so I have a good vantage point of it. We are in the first section in this book. The section consists of how many? Five major sections. Section number one, chapter one, verse 18, through to chapter three, verse 20. That is section number one. 
we are approaching this section as if we were standing in a court of law. Do you think back to Perry Mason? I just connected to the over 45 crowd. You think back to all those courtroom dramas years ago, black and white. Well, we're standing in a courtroom. And in this courtroom, there is a judge. The judge obviously is God. In this courtroom, there is the defendant or the accused. Humanity. But Paul is a little more specific than that. He divides humanity into two groups, Gentiles and Jews. And together, they constitute all of humanity. If you haven't been around the church very long, or for some of our younger ones, that distinction, Gentiles and Jews, can be a little confusing. But we need to understand it. Because the Bible, the Bible presumes this distinction. And we can't understand biblical history without understanding that distinction. And we can't understand much of the New Testament without grasping that distinction. It goes all the way back to the book of Genesis, the book of beginnings. All the way back to Genesis 11. What happens? We have the birth, the advent of secular humanism. Secular humanism is not new. It begins all the way back in Genesis chapter 11. And we have humanity uniting against God. And do you remember building that? Tower. Babel. And, and God, because they were, they were opposing him, a man was thinking to himself, I will build this tower that reaches to the heavens, that reaches to God. What did God do? He confused their languages, spread them over the face of the earth, and there we have the birth of what we call the nations. But God had made a promise back in Genesis 3. He had promised that he would send the seed of the woman. He would send a man. He would send a savior. He would send a redeemer. Someone who would save his people from among the nations. So what does he do in Genesis chapter 12? He calls one man from among those nations. The nations have been spread across the face of the earth. God focuses in on one man, one man alone, Abraham. It was not because Abraham was special. It was not because Abraham was good. It was not because Abraham was righteous. It was not because Abraham was particularly faithful. Abraham was an idolater like everyone else. Abraham was chosen, selected for one reason, one reason alone, God's sovereign grace. God's electing grace. He chose Abraham. And he entered into a covenant with Abraham in your seed, that is, in your son. All these nations of the earth, they will be blessed. Abraham had a couple of sons. Ishmael wasn't chosen. Isaac was. Isaac had a couple of sons. Esau wasn't chosen. Jacob was. Jacob had 12 sons. Jacob's name was changed to Israel. The sons of Israel. The tribes of Israel. The Israelites. And God took that people for a temporary designated period of time and he gave to them in particular what? The scriptures. And in giving them the scriptures and in giving them that elaborate sacrificial system and that religion focused on the high priest, he prepared for what? The coming of that promised Redeemer, the coming, the arrival of that promised Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so from that moment, we have this distinction between the Gentiles, it refers to the nations, everybody who's not an Israelite, this distinction between the Gentiles and the Jews. Now, Paul brings them both together in this epistle, and they both are standing trial. It doesn't matter if you're a Gentile belonging to those nations that went their own way, or if you're a Jew, one of God's people to whom God gave and trusted his oracles, his revelation. It makes no difference. Both are on trial. Both are accused. A charge is brought against them. Paul brings two witnesses. He brings, firstly, 
general revelation. That's what God says about himself where? In creation. He brings a second witness, special revelation. That's what God says about himself in Scripture, the Bible. There are two attorneys, defense attorneys, for the defendant, the accused. The first attorney is Mr. Civility, or what I actually like to call Mr. Nice. He's going to stand up in defense of the Gentiles, and he's going to raise an objection. And then the second defense attorney, Mr. Religiosity, Mr. Religion, he's going to stand up and he's going to levy an objection, raise an objection in defense of the Jews. Prosecuting attorney, obviously, the Apostle Paul. That's how we're approaching the first section in this book, chapter 1, verse 18, all the way through to chapter 3, verse 20. Next slide, Melissa. And here's how it all unfolds. You've seen this before, but it was a couple of months ago, so it's worth reviewing. Verse 18, what does Paul do? He brings his accusation. He declares that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Why? Because what do men do? What do people do? They suppress, they squash, they push down, they stomp upon what? The truth of God. That's his accusation. That is all he is trying to prove, demonstrate in this first big section. That all humanity, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, you are guilty and stand condemned for having suppressed the truth of God. He calls his first witness. So he provides testimony. Doesn't just simply give the accusation and move on. He brings testimony. And he calls his first witness, chapter 1, verse 19, through to verse 32. The first witness is general revelation, creation. And this witness testifies against the Gentiles, the nations. And Paul proves, he demonstrates what? That God has revealed himself. God has made himself known. And the Gentiles, the nations, they know the truth of God. They know it how? Because ever since the creation of the world, God's divine nature, his eternal attributes, his power, these things have been clearly seen. They are self-evident. Whereby man is without excuse. God has revealed himself to everyone all people, all places, all times, immediately through creation. And so everyone knows the truth of God. They possess some knowledge of God. Everyone knows, Paul says in that section, the decree of God, that judgment is coming, and everyone knows, he's going to say in chapter 2, even something of the law of God. Therefore, man, even if they've never seen a Bible... Even if they've never heard the name Jesus Christ, even if they've never heard the word gospel, every individual already stands condemned because every individual suppresses what God has clearly made evident in creation. But there's an objection. The lawyer stands up, first 16 verses, chapter 2. Here's the objection, I'm good. Or actually, the word I prefer is this, I'm nice. But hang on. I'm a nice guy. That's a plague upon Christianity, that word nice. Because we've equated niceness with what it means to be a Christian. And this guy stands up, but hang on a second. I'm not like all these other people doing these sorts of things and, and, and falling into immorality and idolatry. I'm a nice guy. Well, Paul proves the opposite in that section. He silences this defense lawyer. He embarrasses him publicly. And he reminds him, here's your problem. 
Here's a problem with a guy who thinks he's nice. I'm just a nice guy minding my own business, and I think God's going to be sort of kind, I hopefully pleased with me someday on the day of judgment. Here's what completely escapes your notice. God is going to judge the secrets of your heart. Judgment will be based on secrets. Judgment will be based on thoughts. Judgment will be based upon desires. Judgment will be based upon motives. And so whether you are, if you are outwardly sinful, well then it's obvious. If you are outwardly immoral, it's obvious. But Paul's point is this, that being inwardly sinful, inwardly moral, invites God's judgment just as seriously, just as certainly as those who are outwardly sinful. So he silences that defense attorney. Then he calls a second witness, chapter 2, verse 17 through to verse 29, special revelation. So creation goes and takes a seat. The Gentiles, they leave the stand and they take a seat. The Jews now take the stand and now another witness takes a stand, special revelation, Scripture. And we see that Scripture testifies to the fact that the Jews also have suppressed the truth of God. There's an objection, first eight verses of chapter 3. Hang on, Paul. Just back up the wagon. This is scandalous. I am a Jew. I am religious. And Paul's point is this. I couldn't care less. I am a Jew too. But we have suppressed, we have taken the revelation of God, the Scriptures. We have twisted it, we have distorted it, and we have misused it to such an extent that it's no longer recognizable. Having heard from the witnesses, having silenced the defense attorneys, we have the verdict, verses 9 through 18. There is none righteous, no, not one. All. doesn't matter who you are, when you lived, where you lived. All are under sin. And then we have the sentence in verses 19 through 20. Every mouth is stopped. There is absolute silence. Why? Because all people, regardless of what revelation is available to them, creation or scripture, all people stand guilty in the sight of God for having suppressed the truth of God. Thereby the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of man. That's where we are. Ring a bell? Specifically, our text, chapter 2, verses 17 through 24. So you see where we are in this courtroom drama? You can take that away, Melissa. Thank you very much. As Paul now calls this second witness, Scripture, to testify against the Jews... His main point is this, that they have suppressed the truth. They have suppressed it by misusing it. And they have misused it in two ways. Firstly, they have misused it by relying on their religious obedience. Verses 17 through 24. That's what we're looking at right now. And they have, they have twisted it, distorted it, misused it. By relying on their religious observance. That's what you have to look forward to next Lord's Day, verses 25 through 29. That's his point then. A new witness, Scripture itself. A new defendant, really. It's still humanity, but the Jews specifically. And the charge, you have misused what God entrusted to you. And you have misused it in two ways. Firstly, you have misused it by relying upon your religious obedience. And you have misused it by relying 
upon your religious observance. That's where we are then. They misuse Scripture by relying on the religious obedience, verses 17 through 24. Can we make sense of this? Three questions. If we ask three questions, be very concise in our answers, we can get our minds around Paul's argument here and what he is saying. It really isn't that complicated. Here's question number one that we need to grasp. How do the Jews view their relationship with God? Right? How, how do the Jews understand it? How do they perceive it? They think of themselves. They think of God. How do they see their relationship? Paul mentions four details. Verses 17 and 18. Detail number one. They think they are chosen by God. Verse 17, outset. But if you call yourself a Jew, if you call yourself a Jew, they think they are chosen by God. Where does that word Jew come from? Why doesn't Paul use the word Israelite? Why the word Jew? The word Jew comes from one of the sons of Jacob, Judah. Jew, Judah. Why did they derive this name? Why did they adopt this name? I think for two reasons. The first is this. Judah was the last identifiable tribe at the time of the deportation. So hundreds of years before Paul wrote, and the Assyrians swept through the northern kingdom, the Babylonians swept through the southern kingdom of Israel, and they took the Israelites captive. Judah in the south was actually the last identifiable tribe son, if you like, of Jacob. Secondly, and perhaps more importantly, Judah was the last faithful tribe. The kingdom split. Israel split in north and south when Solomon died. The north plunged immediately into idolatry. I mean, it's like going to a smorgasbord. You, en you enter into a restaurant and it's self-served. You've got the big table there. That individual goes right up to the table, doesn't even bother with the plate, just starts picking stuff right off the table, shoving it in their mouth. That's what the northern kingdom is like when it comes to idolatry. As soon as Solomon is dead, they're prostrating themselves before idols. They're playing the harlot before God, and they fall into all sorts of immor immorality and debauchery. They, they, they plunge headlong immediately. Southern kingdom takes a little longer. And the southern kingdom is primarily Judah. And the descent into idolatry of the southern kingdom is it's more like this. And then they fall off. But they were the last remnant, so to speak. The last bastion of faithfulness within the nation of Israel. And that seems to be the twofold reason why the Israelites adopted this name Jew. We, we, we are the remnant. We are those ones with whom God made a covenant. We are God's chosen people. They think they are chosen by God. Second thing, second detail concerning their perceived relationship with God. They think they're blessed by God. But if you call yourself a Jew, here it is, and rely on the law, the law, that covenant that God had made with Israel, the scriptures that God had given to Israel, yes, a tremendous blessing, Yes, a tremendous privilege, but the Jews had fallen into this mentality whereby they assumed that their mere possession of the law, simply having it, somehow guaranteed their blessing, somehow merited, guaranteed their salvation. The third detail is this. They think they're faithful to God. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God, 
We're faithful. We're not like the nations among whom we live. We look around at the Roman Empire and we see Greek mythology and Roman mythology and all those mystery religions. And we see all this pantheism, people worshiping the creation. And we see all this polytheism, people worshiping hundreds, if not thousands of gods. We're not like that. We worship Yahweh, the great I Am. We boast in God. Moreover, we're not like our forefathers. Our forefathers, we admit it, they committed terrible idolatry. And as a result, God sent the Assyrians, He sent the Babylonians, and off they went into captivity. But captivity taught us a lesson. And we have never committed idolatry like that again. We boast in the one true living God. We are faithful to God. The fourth detail concerning their perceived relationship with God is this. They think they are devoted to Him. Verse 18. And know, we think we know His will, and approve what is excellent, because you are instructed from the law. We're not like those nations. We're not like those Gentiles. We've got the law. We observe the Sabbath. We observe circumcision. We know what clothes we're allowed to wear with other clothes. We know what food we're not supposed to eat. We know what sacrifices to offer. We know what laws we are supposed to obey. Not only that, we're able to get into the nitty-gritty of the law and discern between minute detail in the law. We, we are faithful to God. We are devoted to God. That is how they perceive their relationship with Him. Second question is this. How do the Jews view their relationship with others? Verses 19 and 20. Four details. Verse 19. Here's detail number one. If you are sure that you yourself, here it is, are a guide to the blind. Detail number one. Here's detail number two. A light to those who are in darkness. Here's detail number three. An instructor of the foolish. A teacher, number four, of children. Having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. This isn't humble orthodoxy. This is a feeling of superiority. The four statements, I think, are synonymous. Paul is simply emphasizing the fact, look, as far as you perceive your relationship with God, you think everything's okay. And as you perceive your relationship with others, because you think your relationship with God is okay, you look down the end of your nose upon others, and you have adopted this posture of superiority, whereby you think you look upon the ignorant masses, wallowing in their blindness and darkness. That is how you view yourself in relation to others. Third question is this. How should the Jews view themselves? The answer to that question begins in verse 21. And it consists of four questions. Verse 21. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? And so you claim to be a guide to the blind. You claim to be a light to those who are in darkness. You claim to be an instructor of the foolish. You claim to be a teacher of children. Well, here's the thing. Physician, heal thyself. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? Do you not apply the same teaching to yourself? Do you not take those scriptures? Do you not take that law and analyze, see, view yourself and learn from it? Second question. While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You think you're righteous, but you're actually unrighteous. Third question, you who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You think you're moral, but you're actually immoral. 
Next question. You abhor idols. Do you rob temples? And so you actually think you're faithful, but you're guilty of sacrilege. I think what Paul has in view here is simply their own religion and their disregard for their own system of religion, their complete disregard for the temple and all that it stands for, their abuse of the sacrificial system, and their disregard for the law of God that is the heart of the law of God. And so Paul goes at them point by point by point, showing them that their self-perception is all skewed. They've understood their relationship with God wrongly. They understand their relationship with others wrongly. And here's why. They do not see themselves as they really are. It's reminiscent, isn't it, of the Sermon on the Mount. It's reminiscent, actually, of what Paul has said earlier here in chapter 2, that when it comes to the heart of the issue... The nature of sin resides where? Not in our deeds, although yes, deeds can be sinful. The heart of, it, of sin, the nature of sin resides with desires. And so you who preach, do not steal, do you steal in the desires of your heart? Are you guilty of greed? You who preach against immorality, preach against adultery, do you commit adultery in your heart? Are you guilty of lust? Do you not teach yourself. And so he is pinpointing, he is honing in on their hypocrisy. And then he tops it all off, and it is scandalous in verse 23. You who boast in the law, here's where you think you stand. You actually dishonor God by breaking the law. You boast in God. You think you're faithful to God. You think you're devoted to God. You claim the name Jew. You think you're chosen by God. You think you're blessed by God. But here is the reality. You boast in it all. But you actually dishonor God by breaking the law. And then he adds a citation. Old Testament citation in verse 24. It is the second. And this is significant. It is the second clear Old Testament quotation in this book. The first is found back in chapter 1, verse 17. Here's the second, verse 24. It's taken from Isaiah 52. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles, the nations, because of you. What's going on back in Isaiah 52? I've referred to it a couple of times already. We have the deportations. The first is Assyria invading the northern kingdom. The second will be Babylon invading the southern kingdom. And Israel is taken into captivity. And there in Isaiah 52 verse 5, earlier in Isaiah 50, it is pinpointed the reason why they are taken into captivity. It is because of their disobedience. It is because of their unfaithfulness. It is because of their idolatry. And because of their idolatry, their disobedience to the law, their rejection of God, God's name is actually blasphemed among the Gentiles. What's Paul's point in quoting this verse now here in this context? It's simply this. Oh, my Jews, my brothers, nothing has changed. Nothing has changed. The sin your forefathers committed in the past is precisely the sin you are guilty of in the present. 
Just as your forefathers boasted in God in the past, you boast in God in the present. Just as your forefathers looked down upon those around them in the past, you look down upon those around you in the present. Just as your forefathers had a completely messed up, skewed perception of who they were, you have a completely messed up, skewed perception of your. Just as your forefathers were guilty of idolatry, you're guilty of idolatry. Just as your forefathers were guilty of breaking the law, you're guilty of breaking the law. Just as your forefathers sinned grievously in the sight of God, you sinned grievously in the sight of God. Just as because of your forefathers, fathers the name of God was blasphemed among the nations so too right now in this very day Paul is saying to them the name of God because of you is blasphemed among the nations that's his point I want to derive four points of application and I want to just insert here I've exercised tremendous self-control because I think I had a list of ten at one point but four is all I'm going to give you Four points of application that we dare not miss. We understand the text. We understand the message. Here are four points of application we dare not miss. Number one, self-perception is often self-deception. Self-perception is often self-deception. I've used the illustration many occasions here. One more time, I'll throw it out there, the House of Mirrors. And so Allie and I, we were back in Ontario last week down visiting her mom in St. Catharines, took the drive down to Niagara Falls, just to remind ourselves what all the fuss is about. Lundy's Lane, there it stands, this house of mirrors that we, I used to play in with friends years and years and years ago. You walk into that house of mirrors, you stand in front of one mirror, it makes you look like you're two feet tall. Another mirror, you're 17 feet wide. It gives you a distorted view of yourselves. Oh, how many people in our day, not physically speaking, but spiritually speaking, have a completely skewed perception of themselves? Self-perception is often self-deception. One preacher long ago wrote the following. Here's our problem. Our religion consists of a certain number of things we have decided to do. And having done them, we think all is well. Smugness, glibness, self-satisfaction are surely far too much in evidence among us. Where are the poor in spirit? Where are those who mourn? Where are the meek? Where are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness? Where are those who tremble before a God who will judge their inner secrets? Where are those in fair weather or in foul who revel with pure, unbridled joy before the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ? Self-perception is often self-deception. The Jews suffered from oodles of self-deception. Second lesson is this. Moralism. Moralism is the world's largest religion. Moralism is the world's largest religion. It takes many different names, but it's the same religion at essence. It's moralism. This idea... That my relationship with God is determined by things I have decided to do or not do. That my relationship with God, the basis for it, the foundation of it, is something that resides in me or something I have said or something I do. 
It arises from this, this, this complete misunderstanding as to the nature of our problem. Again, let me repeat it. That the heart of sin, the essence of sin, does not reside in the deed. Although the deed is sinful if it violates and transgresses God's law. No, the heart of sin... The essence of sin arises from the desire. It is what comes from the heart that corrupts us. It is what comes from the heart that defiles us. Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote, Sins are nothing but the symptoms of a disease called sin. And it is not the symptoms that matter, but the disease. For it is the disease that kills and not the symptoms. But John Bunyan spot on. He was expounding Luke 18, is it? The story of the Pharisee and the publican, the two who go up to the temple. And the Pharisee is self-satisfied. He's a Jew, boasting the law, boasting God. I'm not like him, not like her. Oh, I thank you, Lord. I'm not like him, I'm not like her. I give it all to you. Oh, I'm so thankful I'm not like him, I'm not like her. There he is looking down his nose at others, judgmental and critical, self-satisfied in his own perceived righteousness and standing before God on who he was, on what he thought he had done, what he thought he had refrained from doing. And then there's the publican, daring not to lift his eyes to God, crying out for mercy before God. John Bunyan wrote an entire book on that one single scene. And he pens something. I think I've got his words exactly. Simply this. In these two men, in these two men, the entire world is comprehended. In these two men, the entire world is comprehended. What do you mean by comprehended? Included. The entire world is epitomized in these two men. There are only two groups of people walking the face of the earth. Those who are hypocrites and won't admit it. Those who are hypocrites and know it. That's it. It's the difference between heaven and hell, folks. It's the difference between surrendering all and resting upon the Lord Jesus Christ as a full and final Savior and running around with this heady notion of our own self-righteousness and standing before God based on something we think we've done or we haven't done. In these two, the entire world is comprehended. Moralism is the world's largest religion. Third lesson is this. Hypocrisy is the greatest impediment to the gospel. That's Paul's point, isn't it? He brings it to that climax in verse 24. Look, here's what you think you are. Let's be clear. Here's, he's speaking to the Jews. Here's how you perceive your relationship with God. Okay, four details. Here's how you perceive your relationship with others. Okay, four details. Here are four very simple questions to demonstrate to you, to prove to you that you have a completely whacked understanding of who you are in relation to God and in relation to others. And as a matter of fact, it's actually the opposite of what you're thinking. It's not just that you don't follow God. It's that you dishonor God. It's not just that you don't really stand upon the law or worship God. It is that because of you and your blatant hypocrisy, the name of God is blasphemed among the nations. See, hypocrisy is the greatest impediment to the gospel. The greatest obstacle to the gospel in our day is not a lack of money. It is not a lack of people. The greatest obstacle to the gospel, the spread of the gospel in our day, is not the threat of Islam 
or any other world religion. The greatest obstacle to the spread of the gospel in our day is not the opposition mounted by a strident secular humanism. No, the greatest obstacle to the spread of the gospel in our day is hypocrisy. Nominal Christianity. The greatest impediment to the gospel in our day. The fourth lesson is this. And you know this is where I'm going if you think carefully. Here it is. The fourth lesson we derive from this text. The righteous shall live by faith. That's Paul's point. This is his first section in this epistle. Chapter 1, verse 18 through to chapter 3, verse 20. Why does he bother to take us by the hand and drag us down into the depths where he forces us to see ourselves as we really are before a holy God. Why, oh why, does he do this? Why does he put us through such an excruciatingly painful experience of self-examination and self-analysis? It's so that we hold on with all we are worth to what he has declared in chapter 1, verse 17. The righteous shall live by faith. Faith in whom? It's faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is faith in a glorious Savior. It is faith in who the Lord Jesus Christ is. It is faith in what the Lord Jesus Christ has done in living a perfect life on behalf of His people, in dying a substitutionary death on behalf of His people. The righteous shall live by faith. Those who know their hypocrisy and are alarmed by it. Those who are marked by poverty of spirit as they understand they bring nothing to the table when it comes to their salvation. It is for people People who understand they are spiritually bankrupt and God's wrath is revealed against them. And they realize and they find and they cling for all they are worth to this glorious hope, the gospel, that the righteous, the man, the woman who will stand righteous in God's sight, the man, the woman who will be received by a holy God, the man, the woman, whose sentence will pass from condemnation to justification to acceptance is the man, the woman, who relies. Note the word. Paul used it, I don't know how many times in this section. Who relies not upon themselves. Who relies not upon their religious obedience. Who relies not upon their religious observance who relies not upon what they think is their relationship with God or what they think they're doing or haven't done. No, it is for that individual who relies upon the Lord Jesus Christ. We're celebrating that glorious truth this morning. We are celebrating it in the Lord's Supper before us. You see the table up here. And you know what's here, the bread. And you know what's over here, the cups. And you know that on this table and in these emblems, we have what? A living picture of what I just described. We have a living picture. We have the gospel come to life, if you like, as we behold the body of the Lord Jesus, broken body represented in the bread, shed blood represented in the cups, and we see his sacrifice and we ponder his sacrifice and we consider what was, what was the reason for his sacrifice. And we're reminded of our own sinfulness 
And it causes us to confess and to remember that He is faithful. If we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We ponder, what's the result of this sacrifice? What's a glorious salvation? He not only only removes the penalty of our sin, but He purifies us and washes us by the Holy Spirit. And it causes us to offer up thanksgiving. And we consider the big question, the why. What's it all about? Why did God do all of this? And we see the answer is for the glory of His own grace and the revelation of His love toward us that He displayed, He manifested His love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Pray with me as we prepare to partake of the Lord's Supper in celebration of the Gospel. Our Heavenly Father, we praise You for what we have heard from Your Word this day. And as always, we look heavenward in expectation and independence. Uh, you, you, you know the condition of each one. You know your own. You know those who stand in Christ before you. You know those who are outside of Christ. You know those who suffer from self-deception. You know those who are playing games. You know the condition of each one, the heart of each one. And we pray, our Father, that as your word has been lifted up and exalted and proclaimed this day, that by your spirit and by your sovereign power, you'll be well pleased and apply it according to the need of each one gathered here. As we partake of this wonderful feast, we look to you again for blessing. May we be mindful of our sin, what drove those nails into the hands of the Lord Jesus Christ. May we be mindful and celebrate the the resulting salvation. And may our hearts be overwhelmed with adoration and praise as we consider your great love for us. Receive our thanks. Receive our worship, we pray. In the matchless name of Christ, amen.